Welcome to Exploration Radio, Mark. Uh, you are our first repeat guest, so hopefully it means something. Hopefully good. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, um, so we already did a episode with you where we talked about a little bit about your career and where you ended up. Today we have a little bit of a different tack that we want to talk about. So one of the requests that we get almost unanimously from a lot of our listeners is to talk about how someone goes through the process of starting a company, especially a junior explorer. And what we wanted to do was to talk to a few people that have gone through that process and see what lessons they've learned, uh, you know, what mistakes they would want to avoid next time around, and what advice would they give to people uh, that are going down this path. So that's kind of the, the, the topic that we want to talk to you about today. Sure. Hi. My name is Ahmad. Hi, my name's Steve, and this is Exploration Radio, a podcast focused on the past, present, and future of exploration. So we we didn't actually cover this in our previous interview. Do you want to give a little quick intro into yourself and your background about uh, where you've been, what you've done? Yeah, yeah, I'll keep it brief. Uh, basically, started off studying geology because I like rocks. Uh, no other reason than that. Uh, got into exploration because I sort of fancied uh, chasing the treasures of the earth. Being a POM and in U- the UK, that wasn't really the place to do it. So after a long uh, journey, ended up in Australia a long time ago um, as a geologist working for Western Mining Corporation, uh, which was great, but then gradually ended up sort of drifting down the food chain into smaller and smaller companies and ending up uh, where I am now, which is great, but you sort of do less geology, you're more of everything else, uh, but uh, you're able to uh, influence the outcome a bit more. So the later part of your career has been mostly in junior exploration companies. Did you have a desire to go down this route, or did you pick opportunities that just came up as you went along? It was just a sort of uh, evolutionary process, really. I didn't start my career with a particular plan in mind, or really a clear picture as of the, uh, the structure of the industry and how it all ticks. So it's not like I started that way. I started off just being glad to be getting paid for doing what I loved. Um, and, you know, as you, you live and learn, uh, you, you uh, get exposed to more things and you learn more in a big company. You, you come up against a few barriers that sort of impede you on the way. And you can either sit back and cruise or try and shake the tree a bit yourself and do something yourself, which is what I ended up doing. So the desire to go and run your own companies is really just so you could have, you could be the the architect of your own success and demise in some ways? Yeah, very much so. You know, as a geologist in a big company, you can do a lot of good work and, and it might have a material um, consequence. Or you could be slaving away for years and years doing the same thing and, and never see any outcome for what you do. And if I think you're motivated and passionate about what you do, that very soon becomes not the thing uh, and you want to actually be able to uh, to see a consequence for your actions. So let's explore that for a little bit. Um, so if you're someone that has a little bit more of an entrepreneurial background, do you think you have a limited shelf life in most companies or bigger companies? Um, I think, you know, the bigger the company, by necessity, the more structure, the more layers, the more process, the more rigor. So if that's what you're comfortable with, that's fine. But if you are of, of more of an entrepreneurial sort of bent, then I think over time you can become frustrated and it takes a while for that level of frustration to sort of overcome the inertia and the fear of actually cutting loose but eventually yes so the frustration that you're talking about is that more from a technical point or a non-technical point uh, what's the root cause of that i don't think from a technical point you know the best part of 10 years i spent with wmc was was great and i learned so much mm-hmm. uh, and that was a very necessary step on my sort of journey but it's being able to deploy your ideas and test them there's more competition, so it's harder to get oxygen in a bigger company. And a lot of new HR people would probably protest at this, but I think you know there's, there's greater downside to sticking your head up and taking a risk because you're more likely to get a negative outcome from doing that than not. So most people, I think, would rather 
sort of not take that sort of risk and it's very much dependent on character and just your general approach to life, I think, uh, your, your degree of uh, tolerance of risk-taking, whether you're prepared to do that or not. And, you know, I, I know lots of great geologists who are perfectly content to do their, their thing in big companies and very happy doing it. Uh, and I know lots of people who aren't necessarily such great geologists but who want to, uh, to shake the tree a bit more and, and, and mm -hmm. see if they can not necessarily benefit financially from what they do but just actually see a consequence for what they do. Ah, okay. So in your case, the motivation to leave a company wasn't so much that, you know, like in big companies, no matter how hard you work, you kind of get paid a salary, really. So in your case, it wasn't that motivation of the financial gain. So it was more that uh, you wanted to satisfy your rage against the machine kind of aspect? Yes, yeah. And I think it's actually, you know, the opposite. To, to leave a, a bigger company in a, in a salaried position, to go to a smaller company where there's a lot more risk, a lot less certainty... You'll probably get paid less. You'll you, you probably, if you're sensible, be have more options and so on. So you leverage to the upside. But in general, there isn't any upside. So chances are you're going to end up worse off. And if you're in a position where you can't afford to be worse off, then that's a very difficult uh, step to take. I wouldn't go from a big company and try and start a small one for a financial benefit. Uh, you have to do it because you have the passion for it. Because in exploration, particularly, you fail most of the time you're not going to get a good financial outcome most of the time. You've got to be doing it because you love it. Uh, and that's what will keep you doing it long enough to give yourself a chance to hit the jackpot one day. So do you consider yourself as a managing director of a junior explorer? Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur in some ways? Uh, not really. Um, I consider someone like Elon Musk an entrepreneur. I'm just somebody who does what he does because he doesn't know what else to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess the reason I asked the entrepreneur question is, I came across this thing which I quite like that entrepreneurs will work 80 hours a week for themselves to avoid working 40 hours a week for someone else. Clearly, the why in that equation is very important. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, in, in that sense, I, I guess that you would call me an entrepreneur, although it sounds a lot grander than it actually is. But everybody running their own business is, is really an entrepreneur. The sole sort of beneficiaries of it, and it, it, it lives or dies on, on what they, they do. So they put the effort in. So let's go back to the moment where you uh, left WMC. How did you pick your next set of roles? Did you have an aim to get a certain type of role when you left WMC? Um, leaving WMC, I'd become a bit frustrated with the, the bureaucracy and inertia of a big company and some of the hypocrisy that was inherent in it. Uh, and pretty well almost as, as an impulse decided, right, I'm going to just leave WMC. I'm going to go and get a job with a small company, uh, which involved moving cities, moving states, going from a what, what appeared to be a secure salaried position to a very insecure position. Um, and I didn't think about it too much. I think you know, if you if you take the time to overanalyze those things, you'll always find plenty of reasons not to do it. So True. sometimes it's just good to jump. Yep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and a lot of things I think that get called uh, gut feel or instinctive are actually very sensible, thought out things. They're, they're just not that well organized in your head to be able to uh, rationally explain it to somebody else. But when the time's right for something, you know, you know, it's right. So leaving WMC, uh, there was a certain time period before you finally came around to running a company where you were a director of a company. What were the steps in between that you had to take to get there? Well, in between, I, I, I moved to a, what was a small company that was in the process of being taken over by a Canadian company called Lion Ore. And that uh, space of a few years went from a $40 million company to a $7 billion company, largely because of the discoveries that that we made and that was a a great time as well and an important time because that was a company that was small enough uh that at the start at least that you could do things and make a difference and we did and we made discoveries and added value to the company which ultimately led to its demise um a successful demise but a demise <laughs> nonetheless right. uh so that was a sort of intermediate stage in between big company and microcap that sort of gave myself and other people the chance, you know, enough time and money to do something meaningful to make discoveries. And 
uh, discoveries that had a material impact on the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was uh, also, I think, the disparity between the impact that those discoveries had on the company and the extent to that they had an impact on me that sort of led to me making the next decision about doing it properly for myself. Ah, okay. So you kind of learned the toolkit at that time and then you could then uh, transfer that to a smaller company, essentially. Yeah, learned the toolkit, you know, and it was great and really rewarding as a geologist making discoveries and being involved in everything that follows on from that and getting recognition for it internally and externally as well. Uh, But the key thing, I think, in one of those discoveries was a bittersweet sort of moment when I'd it was the Waterloo nickel mine and uh, two major shareholders of our joint venture partners. We'd, we'd probably made them $50 million overnight and they were in the courtyard hugging and dancing, which was great for them. And I was really happy. But simultaneously, you're thinking, oh, great. Well, I'm going to get a bottle of wine for this. Um, do I do I want to keep on doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's probably a, a thing that motivates a lot of people when you directly see the people that are benefiting from your labor, you want to translate your labor into the most effective means that you can as well. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's not something you you don't wish on them, but um, spreading the love a bit. Yeah, you want to be part of it, right? Like it's not about being exclusive; it's about being yeah. inclusive, yeah. trying yeah, to include absolutely. as many people as you can in that process. So now becoming a director of a company obviously involves a lot of other things like legal responsibilities, financial responsibilities. How did you gain that knowledge? Uh, (laughs) uh, I didn't have any formal sort of um, uh, professional development or training on that front. It was pretty well all learnt on the job. And my first position as a director was in a company that it was pretty challenging and uh, not very pleasant at all, but set me up with the uh, the whole range of experiences of fighting in the trenches and knowing what not to do as well as what to do in future. That that was a, a sort of vital part of of, yeah, of the next okay. sort of chapter, if you like. Um, so no no formal training. Um, you know, a lot of what goes on in the boardroom is the same as anywhere else. There's a lot of common sense involved, but there's also a lot of uh, statutory responsibilities uh, to be aware of, mm-hmm. much more complex than you first imagine, I think. And in terms of making decisions, a lot of decisions have pros and cons to them, and, and there's a very big grey area in decision-making. Uh, so often the decision you make at a board level, there isn't an easy, obvious answer to, and the consequence can be quite significant if you make the wrong decision. That's high. So uh, I think you need a certain ability to to live with that degree of uncertainty and risk if you're going to be a director. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say you want to be swashbuckling and, and, and a cowboy, far from it. But if you jumped at every sort of shadow that is presented to you as a director, you would be uh, frozen. You know, you wouldn't be able to make a decision. Mm-hmm. So did you uh, get mentoring during this uh, phase of your career? No, absolutely no mentoring, absolutely no formal uh, sort of professional development, but uh, lots and lots of on-the-job training every day, every minute, mm-hmm. uh, being confronted with situations, decisions to make. Um, and there's only so much you can learn about it, I think. Uh, as with a lot of things, your role as a director on a board is very much dependent on the dynamics and relationships with the other directors. Okay. Um and, you know, you can have a charismatic guy in charge. Uh, you can have people being fully transparent to the board or not, as the case may be. You can have people with vested interests or alliances or fears uh, that lead to all sorts of behaviours and learning those and being aware of them and, and working your way around them is is a large part of it, as it is in lots of situations, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You can have a very good board that's well-credentialed but completely dysfunctional, or you can have a, a bunch of first-timers who, who just get it and work well together. What you don't want is, is a guy who's very 
very charismatic and glib uh, and, a, and a bunch of people who were just prepared to take things on face value. You need people who are different, who are prepared to question one another and bang the table every now and again as well, just so that everybody is fully accountable. So healthy tension is a good thing in these type of environments? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you've got, if you've got everybody thinking the same thing, you, you're setting yourself up for a fall sooner yeah. or later. So during this time, did you ever feel that you were uh, uh, not well suited to being a director? Did you ever feel doubt about the role that you were doing? I I didn't f feel not well suited to being a director. I certainly felt not well suited to being a director in that particular company, <laughs> given uh, <laughs> given some of the other personalities and things going on. But um, so, how did you choose your first company? Um, it chose me. Rather okay. than me choosing it, there was a circumstance at the end of Lion Ore where some of the people involved in that were going to go and uh, find a shell, set themselves up and repeat it all over again. And I got tapped on the shoulder to ask if I wanted to be the technical director for that company, if you like. Mm -hmm. So I saw that as an opportunity, um, albeit with some uh, with a price to pay that came with it and probably ended up a lot poorer, but a lot wiser. After three years of that. <laughs> okay. Um, the first company that you were part of was Apex Minerals, yep. which in your words from our last episode was a corporate disaster. Yep. So you just mentioned that there was a cost to you personally there. Do you mind elaborating a little bit more about what that was? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, when things don't go well, um, that's when you, you, you start dwelling on the potential personal risk and downside. Uh, and even if... You know, in an overt sense, you can deal with that. In, in a uh, uh, at a gut level, uh, that that can sort of build up and have an effect. So I had uh, very interesting few years on that board. There were a couple of key things about that. One example is, you know, at, at the start of Apex, I I was issued with some options, which was great. The uh, problem being, particularly with the way the ATO changes tax law all the time, is by the time I was issued those options, the share price had run and they were technically in the money. And the ATO deemed that I'd made a profit, even though, firstly, I hadn't exercised the options and secondly, I couldn't for two years. Yeah, that's right. So um, you get dinged for like fringe benefit or something like that. Yeah, well, just just a, a paper profit on uh, on these things. So... And the magnitude of that was such that I essentially had to sell everything I owned to pay the tax department. And for the next uh, couple of years, the company sort of uh, deteriorated. And by the time the options had actually vested, they were worthless. So I had nothing to actually cash in to to compensate for the this notional paper profit that I'd made. So that was a pretty good learning experience. And... At the start of Sirius, after, after Apex, I was, I was virtually penniless um, because of that. But probably a good example of the sort of thing that, that you need to be aware of as, as some of the, the downside of being a director is partway through that company, uh, we got into a bit of a dispute with, it, with another company about a, a commercial arrangement. And the other company took the view that uh, we'd, uh, we'd not honoured our part of the agreement. So one day there was a knock on the door and this guy presented me with a brown envelope, which I opened, and it was uh, me being sued by another company for several million dollars. Uh, and my <laughs> wife was standing behind me at the time and just asked what it was in the post, and I just said, oh, oh nothing. <laughs> and you're standing there realising that, you know, the, the only thing that you've got left, which is the roof above your head, might not be there anymore. Uh, and uh, and you've got other people sort of relying on you for for that, and uh, that's when you really uh, get tested, I think. <laughs> so that's I mean that's I mean those stories are a great example of the potential downside of when things don't go so well. Um, was it also damage to you as uh, as an individual, like your reputation in the industry? Oh, look, ab absolutely. I mean, in the latter days of that adventure. Uh, there are a number of shareholders who'd been in at the start who all ended up losing a lot of money, individuals and big institutions. And they were, you know, to say unhappy is, is a bit of an understatement. They don't distinguish between 
you know, Mr. A or Mrs. B on the board. It's just the board, so you all get tied with the same brush. At the start of Sirius, um, I was very much tied with that reputation, and there was a lot of uh, passive uh, sort of obstructive behaviour that basically, you know, knocking on a lot of doors that didn't get opened. And oh, okay. probably one story that sticks in my mind actually is is I went over to Vancouver to meet a uh, a fund manager based over there who'd been an investor in Apex, and uh, it was sort of said with with a bit of humour, but there was there was an edge to it as well because you know we'd arranged a meeting and then when I got there, uh, I got to reception and the reception called my name through to him and I heard him he sort of shouted out, "Quick, call security." <laughs> So, you know, he sort of understood that what had happened was not necessarily uh, my fault, but I was still part of that organisation, and you have to uh, you have to sort of overcome those perceptions. And it probably took eighteen months to two years to to actually recover uh, my reputation from from that. Because I mean, even your when you started Sirius, you one of your obviously main partners was Mark Creasy, who was also involved in Apex yes. Minerals as well. Yeah. So, like, you know, in a small industry like this, the degrees of separation aren't that many. Where, you know, your reputation can actually prevent a lot of things from happening as well. That's right. Um, I think in that instance, it sort of worked the reverse way because Mark was close enough to what was going on to get that it, it wasn't necessarily uh, uh, to be the blame to be laid at my doorstep. So he was prepared to back me again, which was good, whereas somebody who was more distant from it wouldn't be able to discern one from the other. So after Apex, what convinced you to get back into that, into that cage, into that ring? Um, it was really the way Sirius came together. It was a, in part a way of getting out of Apex. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because I was going to be the MD this time, yep. uh, that I would have the chance to to set the rules and, and do things the way I felt should be done rather than somebody else's way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the lessons from Apex that were the about the negative behaviours and how not to do things, I made sure they, they you know, the... The sort of culture of Sirius was based around the exact opposite of that: how you should do things, and what okay. what not to do. So, did you have a lot more say in how the board came together in Sirius? Yeah, it was a very unusual situation. I, I wasn't an MD recruited by a board. I was essentially put in as uh, as an MD of a blank canvas and almost recruited the board myself, which meant that I could have some influence over the the sort of culture of that board i think if you're an md or a ceo coming into a position uh, that that is is governed by an incumbent board you're very much held to the culture of that existing board and it's very mm-hmm. difficult for you to be able to implant your own culture into it so if if there's a mismatch it doesn't have a happy ending uh, whereas i was fortunate that i was the one sort of uh, calling the shots in in a way and I could make sure that there was much more of a match of cultures to suit what I was trying to achieve this time around. Mm-hmm. So now there, there is a, a perception in the industry that Mark is a tough customer to deal with. Did you find that when you started dealing with him? Um, depends what you mean by tough. Tough in the sense that he doesn't suffer fools, which is fine. Yep. Um, tough in the sense that he's very shrewd, he thinks strategically and long term, which can frustrate people who've got a shorter term agenda. Mm-hmm. And I think tough in that, you know, he will take his own time to make his mind up, which is fine. Uh, he's not short of opportunities or people coming to him with suggestions as to how he should spend his money. Mm-hmm. So you're bound to be a bit hard nosed, I think, in that circumstance. Yep. If there's trust and respect there, he's fine. You know, I, he's one of the people I really admire in the industry, actually, because he he just follows his own path, doesn't worry about everybody else, and is pretty uh, good at what he does. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the track record speaks for itself in that sense. Yeah, no, he's 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 a pretty unique sort of guy. He's you know 
not in need of of, uh, of money tomorrow to pay the gas bill, so you can afford to uh, to be a bit more strategic and long term. <laughs> so would would serious have happened if Apex hadn't? Um, probably not, because that's how I got to know Mark in the first place. Apart from needing to give some of his own private assets a good shake using somebody else's money in a public company, mm-hmm. I think he was wanting to use that as a way of you know, clawing back some of the money he'd lost in Apex as mm-hmm. well. So I, all these things connect, I think. I don't think you can you can disconnect them. They're all consequences of what's gone before. Yeah, sliding doors working yeah, yeah. out at the right yeah. moment. Yeah, Because yeah. 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 I guess like, you know, one of the things that we talked to you about previously uh, was the fact that you did the deal with Mark to get the ground, to get the company up and running. And... I think it's kind of important to know the the backstory with Apex because I think both of you probably would have been primed for that interaction uh, through your connection at Apex, not just the fact that you knew each other, but also the way the company went and then the opportunities that came out out of Sirius. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, he he saw saw the blood and guts, saw how people behaved and reacted, um, got to know people's strengths and weaknesses a bit more and and so all of that i think i think um sort of made him more comfortable in putting some of his uh his assets into my hands in that sense mm-hmm. and i think even from y- your point i mean you just mentioned the fact that after apex you were in some sort of a precarious situation so i think the fact that you maybe didn't have as much to lose you were probably more willing to give a little bit more on your next endeavor as well well, that yeah, that's an interesting sort of bit of psychology that I've seen in various circumstances. Is you know, if if uh, if you've got nothing to lose, uh, you're more likely to to give it a go because you've got nothing to lose. Yeah, that's. Uh, if, I mean, it's all upside. Yeah, but. it's all upside. Um, if if you have got uh, things at risk, um, then you think harder about putting those things at risk uh, and maybe it influences your behaviour. Um, and that was the case actually through Sirius post-discovery of Nova in the way we did things commercially is uh, we we went about it because we felt we had nothing to lose and we consciously maintained that mindset. We went through a lot of different sorts of commercial negotiations with a bit more boldness than we would have otherwise had. Ah, um, okay. yeah. Uh, which which was a very interesting process, and that includes you know raising money on the equity markets. How mm. we did that, it includes how we got the debt financing from the banks, and and how we got our offtake agreements with some of the uh, the third parties as well. Rather than settle for ten dollars today, uh, you know we were going for a hundred dollars uh, next year. So was a um, so let's talk about serious in that sense. Um, was there opposing views on the board on how you should do that? Um, yeah, without going into too much detail, I think there was a minority element on the board that was suddenly starstruck with all of this paper wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both in, in, the, in when I say paper wealth, I mean the value of the company and the potential value of, of their options or shares in it, both, mm-hmm. both, both aspects. Uh, and which is not an uncommon thing. It's not uncommon, you know. You suddenly get stranded in the headlight, and you think, "Oh, you got this little pot of gold. I can't, I can't bear to lose it. That's Let's nice. just grab it." Um, and it's a lot harder to to just hold your nerve mm-hmm. and say, "Just no, let's let's leave that on the line. Let's leave it on the table. Let's leave it at risk, uh, and it might turn into ten pots of gold." Mm-hmm. Which which is you know the the way it eventually panned out, but there. That's the time we were talking about board boards earlier and, and different personalities and, and so on. And that's when people really show their cards. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like that concept of what you really see, the underbelly of the industry, because there seems to be this perception that, you know, once, you've, once you have a discovery, it's all smooth sailing from that point on. But in reality, from what you and I talked about in our previous interview, the reality is very different. I would probably say arguably it gets harder once you find uh, something because 
you have a lot more people circling around you now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll mix my metaphors here. So that's the cliche. It's a jungle out there. Does exist for a reason. <laughs> There's a lot of wild animals wanting to uh, to prey on you and, and take what you've got away from you. And the feeling I had post uh, the discovery of Nova was it was such a quality discovery in such a sort of uh, uh, bare landscape at the time that everybody was looking and everybody was wanting. Mm -hmm. So you suddenly feel like you're on the savannah, you've got the only scrap of meat and every bugger out there is circling and will dash in and grab it if you take your eyes off it or sleep for one moment. Yeah. And that's when I think the hard yards really start. Uh, you know, it, it translates into just doing more things faster, like drilling it quicker, getting a resource, increasing it, staying a moving target so that nobody can get a fix on you. And that's when all sorts of predators come out, people who will uh, offer you what seems like a great financing deal in return for an offtake, which can come back and bite you in the bum big time mm -hmm. later on, or people offering to raise you money, which ultimately is for their benefit, not yours. Uh, and then, you know, other corporates who, who want the asset, who will uh, do everything they can, any way they can to, to try and get that asset, uh, you know, which may involve quietly talking to some of your bigger shareholders on the side to, to get a, a block of support, or it might involve out of the blue them writing you an offer that they deem is a material event which forces you to disclose it to the market, which then makes it a self-fulfilling uh, exercise almost. So uh, you yeah, know, the classic... They force your hand in some ways. Classic bear hug. Yeah. And so you've got people doing all sorts of things like that all the time. And as a director, you're constantly saying, okay, what's best for the shareholders? What's not in the interest of shareholders? Is this something that I'm required to take seriously as a director on behalf of shareholders or not? Do I say anything about it or not? And that's when all of the regulatory things come into play and make it really hard as, as a director to know what the right thing to do is. Because, you know, you, can, you could receive an informal offer from a third party about something uh, and at the time, be fully convinced it's a ridiculously lowball offer and do nothing about it. And then three months down the track, if something adverse has happened and the share price is lower and, and somehow this is disclosed, you'll be accused of not doing the right thing by direct by the shareholders, even yep. though based on what you had to play in front of you at the time, it was exactly the right thing to do. So you've got to try and weigh up all of these things. And it, it's it's a constant barrage. It's not like the occasional, occasional prod. It, it's nonstop. Yeah, that's right. And the, I mean, you know, there is a whole uh, legal environment around it where you're not just talking about, you know, a mistake going, mm, you know, something could happen. It could be jail. It could be Absolutely, yeah. Cla class actions from shareholders. It can be ASIC investigations, uh, you name it. And that guy who rocks up at the front door with the brown paper envelope might indeed end up with your house. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so, so how do you prepare yourself? For that circus that you have to go through um I, I don't know if you can prepare yourself for it because until you've experienced it i don't think you can really fully appreciate what's coming mm -hmm. um i think it's just a circumstance that is thrust upon people and by chance or whatever uh, it just depends if you have the the sort of attitude uh and the sort of intestinal fortitude to to be able to take it or not. And some people can just roll with the punches. Some people just crumble under the weight of that sort of pressure. Some people uh, even enjoy it. You know, the people who in another life would be playing poker in Vegas or something, they actually yeah. enjoy the risk. Yeah. And and actually, I think it produces endorphins or something. They get off on it. So which one are you in that? In well, that I'm not that. Yeah. I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle, I think. Okay. So, the, I mean, this situation obviously sounds very stressful. Did it have any effect on you personally, from like your personal health point of view? Um, with, I think, yeah, in, in, in the sort of bad days of Apex, it, it certainly had an effect on me. I, I, uh, there was a time when I, I was admitted to hospital, actually, and had, had to actually have an angiogram because wow. of the stress. 
Yeah. Turns out that it was fine, you know. They stuck a tube at my femoral artery. Uh, they they uh, sort of swabbed me all up, ready for open-heart surgery, and I was lying on the slab watching this all on TV, conscious, uh, which was fairly scary. But turns out that by them doing it, they found out that it was great. Open arteries, low cholesterol and everything, so that was a good sort of checkup. <laughs> but at the time, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it didn't feel that good. Um but then on the other, the flip side to that coin is with Sirius, even though the stakes were much higher, it was all a big positive wave of, of good things. And mm-hmm. even though that came with a lot of threats that you had to deal with, that you were dealing with those threats for positive reasons to sort of add value and improve things rather than to limit the downside. So that was very stressful too, but hey, you you got to wish for that sort of stress. And, you know, I spent three years living on caffeine, alcohol and adrenaline and not getting much sleep and doing 40 meetings in five countries in five days and things like that, uh, which takes its toll physically but um, was a heck of a ride. Now with S2, the clock's reset and we're back to being a small explorer again and there's an expectation that, you know, we'll just pull the next Nova out from the proverbial and uh, easier said than done. Um, So you do feel the weight of expectation all over again. Uh, And you get a whole bunch of people out there in the market who have different motives and different tolerances. And so, uh, you know, some of those those people are quite relaxed uh, and are content to stay the journey. Other people get a bit irritated and, and you have to deal with them on on a pretty regular basis and and that that can get get you down a bit but uh that's what comes with the territory i mean i find that really interesting that you know like success is not necessarily the the end point either it then builds up expectations for the next go that you i mean it would have been okay if you you know packed up and uh and left and went did something different but now when you're still in the game that those expectations add a little bit of pressure on as well yeah they do um after Sirius, uh, a lot of people assumed that we'd just uh, put our feet up and retire and were surprised when we didn't and asked why. And th- the reason was is is because this is what we do and we love doing it. Uh, we always believe that there's going to be another one and we're better positioned now to at least give it a good shake than we were before thanks mm-hmm. to the track record and, and everything that sort of springs from that. So we're not doing it for the love of it in a romantic way which is just, you know, to have a, a nice hike in the hills or something like that. We're doing it because we we know what value it can deliver and how it can change people's lives as well. Um, and we focus on the doing of it uh, and the enjoyment of it, despite the, the downside, because uh, if, if you enjoy it, you're going to do it well and you're going to give yourself a better chance of actually succeeding. Whereas if you're just focused on what the end game is, which essentially is the money, uh, you're, you're less likely to be doing what you need to be doing in the here and now to actually get to that point. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, success kind of buys you a little bit of loyalty from investors as well? Yeah, or it, people it's, in it's very much a double-edged sword. It buys you the the sort of profile to be able to do it and the loyalty uh, from people to, to be able to do it, but it also brings that expectation as well. Yeah. Um, and the that stuff has a shelf life too. So, you know, we, we're conscious that we want to do do it again and we've only got a certain amount of time to do it before. Yeah, that's right. You're only as good as your last yeah, uh, project exactly. in some ways. Yeah. yeah. So the process of finding Nova was obviously very rewarding. Uh, were you slightly jaded by a lot of the other aspects of that process? Yeah, there's a, you know, it, it's a thankless job. Um, you know, you're everybody's hero when things are going well, but quite the opposite when things aren't going well and they don't have to be bad to, for you to be... Uh, it just has to be the perception of it trending bad or something like yeah, that, Yeah, right? the, the lack of good. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> or the lack of great, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you do have to spend a lot of time having the same conversations with people and maintaining the belief, which is important and time well spent if if it has a good outcome, but... You know, there are a lot of people in there in, in the market who are only interested in a, a quick profit for themselves and will mm-hmm. are your best mates when things are going well, but will turn on you like vipers if things aren't going well. 
you would have experienced it the opposite way yes yeah like you would have obviously had a lot of people that had a certain uh reputational concept about you and then you would have had to do the opposite so so you would have had the venom first and then the gratitude later probably yeah well, it was an instance um at the start of Sirius after apex where I'd organised an interview uh, in Sydney with with a uh, a broker and a fund manager, and uh, got there at the appointed time. The secretary announced my arrival, and two hours later, I was still sitting there. And I eventually went up and asked if this guy was going to turn up or not. And she said, "Oh, I know he's busy doing something else. Sorry." And that was it. Uh, and that was, you know, his uh, his way of uh, of making his point. So without being sort of uh, confrontational about it, when it came time for one of the several capital raisings we did with Sirius to to put a list together, that person wasn't on it. (laughs) Uh, What is it? Uh, Everyone gets their just desserts in the end. Uh, This is a really good example of you have to play fair with a lot of people because even on the way up, because you might meet them on the way down or vice versa as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And the cards fell uh, a much more adverse way for that person ultimately than, than they did for me. So yeah. <laughs> so do you enjoy this aspect? Of, no, of I, the... hate <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I don't think there's anyone that enjoy it, I really. Mean, like... I, I became a geologist because I, I, I was a bit of a loner and I like rocks and I didn't really like people. And rocks don't talk back. Uh, and I ended up in a job where I have to speak to people all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think i mean like having now obviously spoken to a few people it's really interesting to me that that's like a common trait that people have to kind of learn as they go along that you have to learn how to interact and deal with people yeah without that you know you can have the best ideas in the world uh, in, in terms of finding the next big thing but if you can't connect with the people who can actualize that by giving you the money to do so then it's all pretty academic mm-hmm. um so have, having that ability to to span those worlds is is vital and i don't think i'm actually that good at it i was just lucky in that you know the last thing we found nova was so good that every, everybody wanted to to talk and the quality of the asset made everything else that much easier i mean uh yeah i mentioned that we interviewed malcolm and his comment was exactly along the lines that no matter how ridiculous a meeting looks, take every meeting because you don't know what might come out of it. Yeah, you have to go and engage with everyone thinking that they, they're a viable option and then see how it, how it turns out. And I think one of his lessons was that he had to kind of train himself to do that because not have perceptions about people and going into things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's... Uh... I've uh, been in a situation where, you know, a scruffy-looking guy, um, sort of, uh, and buys three million you. dollars worth of yeah, his shares. Yeah, a real big hitter uh, <laughs> and a real loyal shareholder. Uh, and uh, another occasion where you know you're in, in London in a flash office, a guy in a flash suit, and you're halfway through a presentation, and and this is real. This is, and and then he says, "So tell me, what what's this thing called grade?" So this is, I mean, so this is also a, a point that, you know, like when we talk about the investment community, we often refer to them as this homogeneous blob, but it's not. There, There's a lot of intricacies to that. There's obviously people that are well-versed with the industry, people that are completely non-educated about the industry, and you have to kind of deal with all of this mob at the same time. Yeah, you know, gen- generalist investors um, don't understand mining, they certainly don't understand exploration. They're used to manufacturing and services and things like that, uh, assuming that you do a certain thing and you get a certain result, not understanding that you don't necessarily get a result at all. So in some ways they're easier to sort of bring in, but they're much more management intensive when they're in because you have to educate them and they don't understand. And often that's when the disappointment sets in and the realisation that, that it's different to what they thought. And then mm-hmm. they exit and it affects your share price and everything flows on from that. Whereas, you know, you get the, the resource specialists who at least get what you're doing. But then even within those guys, you've got the quantitative guys who just look look at things mathematically. You've got the, the, the gut 
investors who go with a sense of uh, their view on the management without really being able to rationalise it, who will come in for big licks. Yep. Um, you've got you know highly technical guys who, who look at things very thoroughly um, and can be very right or can completely overanalyse things. Um, you've got people who will, on one hand, be your best mate and be backing you in the market, but on the other hand, short selling you and making a fortune from that. So you don't actually know who you're talking to a lot of the time. Uh, you can work it out to a certain extent, but you know it's that that is one of the real, uh, real hard aspects of trying to be the person who's responsible for placing the shares of the company in the hands of the right people. And I guess you know the reason why I really wanted to have this discussion is I think there is this um, facade that a lot of people kind of get stuck in, where they go, as long as you get a good technical idea. You know, that's what you need for it to be a successful junior explorer. And I actually reckon that's perhaps one part of the equation. But realistically, all of these other things around it are actually far more important. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I say, and it sounds stupidly obvious, but doesn't happen a lot of the time, is, is you look at projects being developed and a lot of effort goes into mine design, metallurgy, marketing infrastructure on the assumption that the resource that, that has been given to them by the geologist is the resource and there are resources and resources and unless you can critically appraise whether that resource is real or just a house of cards the rest can just be a house of cards and, and, and collapse uh, and it's the same with the approach to exploration in that you can't explore without a good technical background Oh, in terms of geology, mineralization, all the models, uh, the technologies and so on. Uh, but what I found in the larger companies is because that was people's sole role, that they were very obsessed with that and didn't get to see what else goes into it to actually make the difference. And I sort of sensed that and moving down the food chain into smaller companies, my particular view is, you know, you can't do without that geological expertise, but to a minor extent, plus or minus a couple of percent, everybody has that. And it's not ultimately that that determines whether or not you find something. It's the other factors that add to that. And it's your ability to, to basically get enough money to chase those ideas, to maintain the support in the market, to keep doing so. And... You know, I I left WMC and when I was with Lion Ore before I found Thunderbox, I spent the best part of two years in a tent. And, you know, people will ask me what led to the discovery of Thunderbox and you can sort of talk about different technical processes and things like that. But I like to say ultimately what led to the discovery of Thunderbox is ultimately I was prepared to be in a tent for two years in the bush whilst my... Uh, previous peers were sort of sitting behind a desk with a flashy title and, a, and an expense account. And it's what people wanted, ultimately. Mm -hmm. I was prepared to forego that uh, and just do that. And in a sense, that's what led to that outcome. It was the same with Nova. I was living in a tent out at the Fraser Range for a lot of the time prior yeah. to that. And a lot of people just weren't prepared when, by the time they were in the 40s to be getting their hands dirty and be sweating and swatting flies and things like that and not have the sort of uh, uh, peer recognition um, or sort of place within an organisation that made them feel special. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you read anything by Adam Grant, you know, a, a psychologist at Warden, he has you know, the saying that we currently in our world don't have any shortage of good ideas. We have a shortage of people willing to do something with those ideas. And I think that's really what a lot of this comes down to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In, in a sense, and it, it sort of sounds silly, but the difference between succeeding and failing in exploration and the sort of stuff that I and my, my guys have done, ultimately the key differentiator is that we wanted it more. And, you know, we were prepared to sacrifice more of other things to try and get to that point. And, you know, it's like a 100-metre sprint in the Olympics in the final. They're all all elite athletes. The one that wins 
by a hundredth of a second is the one that just wants it that little bit more to will themselves to do it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so what advice would you have for someone that's thinking of going down the path of running their own company? What's some uh, key characteristics, topics, things like that, that you've picked up along your way? I think appraise yourself honestly and work out whether or not you have the uh, sort of mental capacity to live with uncertainty and risk and to live in a way where you get no thanks for anything. Now, if you feel you can do that, then that's the first step. If you can't, don't even try. I know people who have been directors uh, and who, in an intellectual sense, have had all of the knowledge understood all of the legal uh, framework around that to be good directors but haven't had that capacity to live with the risk and therefore have been unable to be effective in that role. So um, you need to do that. If your life circumstances are such that you've got nothing to lose or you're prepared to put what you've got on the table and live with the consequences, that's fine too. But if if you know you're in a position where personal circumstances are such that you don't want any risk of those being compromised, then don't. <laughs> Pretty good, I think. Um, so if we wound the tape back and, yeah, you could talk to Mark Bennett 15 years ago, uh, would you do something different or would you tell him uh, there's something they should watch out for? Probably not. not because 15 years ago I hadn't experienced all of this. So yeah. Let's make it I was ten. only guessing. Go <laughs> yeah. um, join the Apex. That'll... You know, that, that I look back on that. Um, that was a necessary. Sirius wouldn't have happened without Apex. So that no, was that's right. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but you don't know that at the time. You've just got to, I think, go with the flow. Uh, you know, you, you reach these decision points in life. And, and if you're too afraid to do it, then you just won't. You ju you've just got to go with the flow. Doesn't exactly sound like uh, MBA material, that, but... <laughs> I'm sure it's on the PowerPoint slide at some point somewhere. But I mean, but I, I do like that because it, it kind of says that the, the start doesn't necessarily justify the end. Yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of steps in the middle that you can still get to control along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know... I used to ride a push bike, uh, I still do, but quite a lot when I was younger, and I used to ride pretty long distances, like 100 miles at a time. And if I started out on one of those journeys thinking, shit, I've got 100 miles to do, exactly. I wouldn't have got on the bike. That's so fine. I broke it down into smaller bits and uh, just focused on the next little waypoint. And eventually I got there. Uh, the dogged pursuit of short-term goals is much better than coming up with vast long-term goals, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. So this is a question we ask all of our guests. Uh, what's an idea that you think that needs to die in exploration? It can be a concept, a thing. An idea. Ah. What would you like to jettison out of exploration tomorrow? Um, okay. Uh, this, this is a question without notice, so I'm going to, you know. Uh, Feel free to wing it. I'm going to wing it, all right. Mineral systems, how about that? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Not that I don't. Yeah, I, that that's a fairly sort of uh, all-encompassing comment, but it, it's one of these things that it's it's an idea that comes together that's very good, but then gets jumped on by lots of people and it ends up losing its meaning uh, and gets abused, <laughs> because you know, in the sense that yeah, it's valid, it's good, it's great, but how do you get from that to actually finding something? That's that's the tricky bit. I think like that concept of model thinking, I think we're, as an industry, we're definitely very guilty of it at times. Yeah, it's like strategy. You you know, you wouldn't want to start a battle without strategy, but you start a battle knowing that as soon as you start the battle, the strategy is going to be worthless and you have to change your tactics, but it doesn't mean you don't need a strategy. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, so conversely, what's an idea, again, an idea or a concept that you think we should maintain in exploration at all costs? Um simple good old-fashioned boots on the ground and i know a lot of rocks don't stick out the ground but i think it's it's a dying skill you know there's there's more and more focus on on remote methods uh including by remote i mean keyboards mm -hmm. as well 
uh, and less and less on actually going there looking and being able to say what rocket actually is uh, and how it's been altered and, and so on. Um, and it comes down to the simple stuff a lot of the time. And a lot of people don't like me saying that because it's not what they do. But crude but effective, I think, is, is my preference. That's right. Yeah, you mentioned that people oppose this idea, but I think they your, your comment, the way I would read it, is that you're talking about the tacit information that you can pick up by being boots on ground. You should ensure that that's still the valuable part of doing geology. And I think, you know, people that oppose that view are not necessarily picking up that that concept there. So so I, I agree. The tacit information that you can pick up, yeah. you should try to maintain that as long as you can. And you know, that, that was one of the events that sort of helped me make up my mind about leaving WMC. It was way back in the, the beginnings of time when GIS systems were just starting to, to develop. And a lot of very smart people jumped on that particular bandwagon and spent a lot of time in their office basically trying to manipulate data to get an extra 2 or 3% of information from that data. But it never actually made a difference. Whereas by doing that, there was an opportunity cost. They weren't in the field where they could have got 10 or 20% more information out, out of the data available. Mm -hmm. um, so it was that mentality of you know, trying to be clever but not actually being prepared to go out and do it that made me feel that this is, this is the time to go. There's lots of opportunity for people who aren't trying to be clever and just want to do it. I care. Okay. So you, you thought that the company had a, a shift in what they found valuable at that point? Yeah, look, I, I would go as far to say the, the clever thing about WMC was it recruited a lot of smart people. The not so clever thing about it was that those smart people, I think, spent more time nursing their egos and competing against one another. Uh, for promotion and recognition within the company uh, for the furtherance of themselves than actually working towards what the real objective was. Mm -hmm. And when you start getting that sort of fragmentation, you start getting a lot of dissipated energy. You know, that's why ultimately when you're a small company, you're all in the same boat. You, uh, you're reliant on yourselves. And if, if you can't function as, as a small little group, um, you're buggered. And I think this may be uh, something that we can explore, but I think the companies that are successful, the smaller companies that are successful, they are much better at being able to produce a collaborative product than necessarily an, uh, an individually driven product. Yeah, it's one team that will all benefit from the mm -hmm. outcome rather than a bunch of different teams who, of which one will be a winner and the rest will be losers. Yeah, and you, know, you add in what people uh, think is valuable and then you have more dispersion about what people should be working on and, and the compounds from that yeah, point on. Yeah, and, you know, it, it flows into other things as well. You know, the bigger the company, the bigger the threshold of target you need. So the, the greater the assumptions are used in what will be good enough or not. And it's always much easier to discount something rather than to, to not discount something. And with a small company, there's an imperative, whatever you've got, You've got to make the most of it to survive. In some big companies, it's very easy to say this is not going to be big enough. And uh, again, drawing on the, the WMC sort of time, uh, and I think some of my ex-WMC colleagues will be smiling at this and some will be uh, aghast, is that in my view, towards the end, there was almost this arrogant perception that if you weren't clever enough to be able to find an ore body with one drill hole, it wasn't worth finding. You know, I did a study on 20 discoveries, and I think in probably 70% of circumstances, they only became big enough to satisfy the threshold criteria of the companies that had them, uh, probably three or four years down the track, when the company had committed to developing a mine, and they had their capital to protect, and they needed to drill more to find more, and that's mm. when they grew. They, they had no concept of how big or small they would be at the start. And if you go into something thinking, oh, I want 5 million ounces of gold and you can only find one, then you might as well, you know, turn the lights out. I mean, I, th I think the, the comment that you're making is like a classic problem of commitment at the start. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot easier to find ways to say no than to search for a way to say yes to doing something. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, <laughs> I remember an exploration manager coming out into the field with me to review one of my projects. 
uh, and we were sitting in the Land Cruiser and we, we arrived at the project and stopped. And he looked out the window and he looked around a bit and then he just said, nah, carry on. <laughs> it's pretty easy to, to say no and, and not have to go and walk for half a day. And, and interestingly, that particular project is now a mine. Uh, I think there's way too many stories of those around, I think. <laughs> um, that's it, Mark. That's that's it for us. Um, thanks a lot for coming on, on our show again. Oh, uh, no problem. Pleasure. And based on your performance today, you're definitely going to be on at some other point as well, <laughs> if you can make it work. <laughs> so no, thanks a lot for coming on. That was great. Thanks, Ahmed. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and the Mark. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring.